thank you, uh, President Lenchowski, Assistant Secretary. I, I see another former Assistant Secretary, uh, Undersecretary, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, what a surreal honor it is <coughs> to be invited to speak to you about my theories. It has been suggested, I don't really, I did not come to talk about overstock, but there is a aspect of Overstock's history that it's, I've gotten a request to talk about <clears throat> that you may find interesting. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes talking about Overstock in this particular corner before launching into the economic warfare. Uh, most of you remember, I'm sure, the dot-com boom, when anyone could drop out of business school and on a one-page business plan go into a venture capitalist and raise $50 million. I had a business plan, carefully thought out, so I thought that was predicated, and again, I'm going to keep the business part of this very, very short, but basically mainstream retail is set up to optimize around three variables. Uh, high quantities of goods uh, from a uh, concentrated set of suppliers, not much differentiation among them, and that's what the mainstream supply chain is, is optimized for. Goods spill out into retail into in, in bankruptcies and liquidations and canceled orders and small amounts of disparate products from a highly varied supplier base. And I, the idea was let's build a supply chain that can deal in that world, bring it online to a mass consumer audience. I went to 85 venture capitalists with that idea in a day that when anyone could raise money from base VCs, and of them I was turned down by 85 venture capitalists, which tells you what a lousy salesman I am. But then this glorious thing happened a few months later, a wonderful thing called the dot-com collapse. And I found myself, I, we discovered that the supply chain we had built to work with these, these liquidations and excess orders worked very well on bankruptcies too. And we went out and liquidated 18 companies that had been funded by the same guys who turned me down for money. I'm much too mature to take any undue satisfaction from that, I assure you. Doonesbury did a series on us about called myvulture.com about a guy doing just that. And they, uh, I was asked on ABC 2020 did a show on us, and the guy said, how do you feel about making money off the distress of other companies? I said, Warren Buffett says the first rule of business is if you're not going to kick a man when he's down, when are you going to kick him? <laughs> so anyway, without his background, two years into it, I was... After not having a break for two years, I went off, I took a little vacation, went to Cambodia, went motorcycling around Cambodia, where I, where I had been some years previously, to see how it turned out. And in Cambodia, there are a lot of landmine survivors, of course, and I discovered that they were retraining people who had lost body parts as weavers and potters and silversmiths and small-scale artisans. And I started wondering, why don't we see these products in America? in the retail system, and it was because, it was, I consider it actually the single light bulb moment of my life, the single best idea of my life, when it finally clicked for me. The reason we don't see these artisan production products is because they are small amounts of dissimilar products from a varied supply, highly varied supplier base, i.e. exactly what we had just spent two years building a supply chain to work with. So we became, so I came back, we started a division within Overstock called World Stock, it just carries the goods of artisans from around the world that makes no profit. Uh, we now have about 10,000 suppliers in 55 countries. We have people scattered all over the world. Uh, and 
most of them, in fact, I, we won a prize some years ago from President Karzai, gave us a big plaque. We had become the largest employer, private employer in Afghanistan. With 1,500 people, 1,300 of them women. And for various reasons, I can go into the Q&A if you want, we focus on women. Uh, our preference is dealing with women. So anyway, I was told that I should explain WorldStock because it's this corner of over. Oh, we recently passed the $100 million mark just a few weeks ago. We've, it's been in business 10 years. We're the largest. It's now there's a whole field called fair trade. I'd never heard of fair trade. When we started this, we're the largest fair trade organization in the world. We just passed $100 million in, in money sent back to our artisan suppliers. And in fact, uh, uh, well, it's, it's the largest fair trade group in the world. So that's a little corner of our overstock you may not know about. I'm going to talk about naked shorts, bust outs, and the once and future cataclysm has nothing to do with overstock. First thing, please get out of your mind is this has, this has nothing to do with overstock. And in fact, I, if we all remember the matrix where the Morpheus is saying to Neo, got a blue pill and a red pill. You take the blue pill, you wake up in bed, believe anything you want to believe, or you take the red pill, and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I have a red pill question. And the red pill question concerns two gentlemen, Melvin Weiss and Bill Larac. And business people know their names from the 1990s. These were the great uh, masters of the plaintiff's strike suit. Anytime a share of stock went down or significantly in some company in America, these guys were one of uh, a law firm called Milberg Weiss, one of the top 10 law firms in America and they would file a plaintiff's class action suit on behalf of the shareholders. Well, the, in 2006, the Department of Justice brought a, uh, a indictment, an indictment against them, and these two fellows went to jail. The law firm, one of the top 10 law firms in America, Chernobyl, uh, these guys did several years in jail. And it turns out they were using plaintiffs who were shills, that, the, uh, that were shills that, that, that were actually working for the law firm. And on page 29 of the DOJ indictment, there's a very strange sentence, where the sh where, which reads, the paid plaintiffs, i.e. the shills, would pur purchase the securities at issue, anticipating the securities would decline in value in order to position themselves to be named plaintiffs in security fraud class actions and to obtain kickback payments from Milberg Weiss. So this is a very strange sentence. Look at this part anticipating that the securities would decline in value in order to position themselves to be named plaintiffs. How'd they know? Turns out that these were not show plaintiffs just out there buying stock in all of these different companies. They were being specifically told ahead of time, weeks or several months ahead of time, go and buy shares in this company. How'd they know? Bill Lorac, Melvin Weiss are not hedge fund managers, not that they would know, but if the market's efficient, how they know weeks or months ahead of time which companies were going to collapse? Uh, so that's the red pill. And it's something that, uh, well, you'll understand by the end of this presentation how they knew. Now, the left has jumped on this. Alan Greenspan in October 2008, with everything melting down, civilization on the brink, so we were told, was asked to testify to Congress, give his analysis, and he said something that, like I said, the left has jumped on and said, oh, this um, Alan Greenspan admitted markets don't work. But listen carefully to the, the sentence that is the 
this has been overlooked, although this, the, the general, the gist of what he has said has been discussed a lot. There's something specific in this sentence that's been overlooked. There are additional regulatory changes that this breakdown of the central pillar of competitive markets requires in order to return to stability, particularly in the areas of fraud, settlement, and securitization. Well, fraud. We all know what fraud is. Bernie Madoff was fraud, securitization, mortgage-backed securities, and collateralized debt obligation, securitization. Uh, but what about settlement? What was he talking about? He mentioned as one of his three things that have been overlooked, settlement. First thing to know is settlement is a subject that is just dry or dull as dishwater. So I'm going to breeze through in a half a dozen slides explaining what settlement is. Because if there's one word I hope you take away from my talk tonight, it's settlement. <clears throat> uh, suppose we're talking about some investors and a hedge fund. Investors have some cash, a hedge fund has some stock, and the investors go into the marketplace and they buy the stock from the hedge fund. That's the simple, most simplest cartoonish picture of settlement. It's the, it's the, the, exchange, the deal is made on the exchange, but the process by which money and stock changes hands is called settlement. In the US, it happens on a T plus three basis. That means three days after the trade, when you go and buy shares in IBM through your E-Trade account, three days later, the money and the stock actually change hands. But at least through the last decade, there was a tremendous amount of slop in that arrangement. And it was really T plus 3 plus 13. There was a 13-day grace period. And at the end of the 13 days, all that happened was <clears throat> the exchange said you're not supposed to do that. Well, you weren't supposed to do it in the first place. But this was going on on a mammoth scale in the marketplace. And the point is there's far more slop in, certainly through the last decade, far more slop in the settlement system than anybody, than the general public understood. So that comes about because in the US, the two parts of settlement are divorced. There's one set of plumbing in the system by which the cash changes hands. And there's another set of plumbing, which is not geared to the first, by which the stock changes hands. Now, in truth, of course, we don't have mom and pops talking to Gordon Gecko hedge funds, each is represented by a broker dealer. And the settlement is occurring between broker dealers. Uh, and in fact, the broker-dealers aren't talking to each other directly with this. <clears throat> the broker-dealers are all plumbed in. They're connected to a corporation you've probably never heard of called the DTCC, uh, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, which clears and settles, I think it's four, four quadrillion dollars per year, something about 60 times the size of the planetary GDP. It's cleared and settled through an organization you've probably never heard of, it's federally, at least through the last decade, it was federally regulated, except on the days it didn't want to be. Dr. Shapiro, under Secretary of Commerce for Economics under Bill Clinton, and generally is considered the architect of the Clinton economy, has done some incredible work unraveling uh, the processes of the DTCC and, and exploring what's really gone on there. So when brokers are settling, it's actually through the DTCC. In fact, there's about 1,500 brokers in America who are wired, plumbed, in a hub-and-spoke system into the DTCC. 
and as the brokers, as you're making trades, as citizens are making market participants are making trades at the periphery, it's actually the brokers are flowing through the, the cash and stock flows through the DTCC. Now, in fact, it's not even, <clears throat> there are some brokers who are not connected directly. There are some brokers who are another level out and connected to brokers who will go through. And these are called referring brokers and these are called clearing brokers. And this all becomes important in understanding my claims about economic warfare. I'm not, I, I know this may sound dull, but. And then the last step to understand in this is the money in stock doesn't really pass through it. It's all held in various accounts within this enormous corporation you've never heard of. And as people are changing at the periphery, what's really going on is money and stock is flowing back and forth within accounts at the DTCC. So that's, <clears throat> that's settlement. The problem is the system was set up with fault tolerance. And this all really evolved about 20 years ago, the electronic, making this so electronic because in the early 70s there was a paperwork crisis. People were running around Wall Street with burlap sacks of stock to do settlement and they got behind at one point. And anyway, this, that electronic system evolved in the early 90s. It was developed with fault tolerance. Why do you want, or what is fault tolerance? Suppose the investors go into the marketplace and they buy, they want to buy some stock. And again, to simplify it, I've taken away all the intermediaries. Uh, they buy some stock and the money goes to the seller, the hedge fund. But suppose that hedge fund made a mistake. They thought they had 10,000 shares, they sold 10,000 shares, but they only have 1,000. Or the dog ate the certificate. Or they got some, somebody fat fingered a trade. As you know, this stuff happens. The system, you wouldn't want it to just vapor lock and grind to a halt. So what happens is some artificial shares are created called a failure, well, a failure to deliver, to deliver is created and sent through the system. And this failure to deliver has many of the legal properties and economic properties of actual stock. And it can become very blurry, for example, who has the right to vote the stock. Uh, so the system was set up with a legitimate need for fault tolerance. But my theory and why I want you to remember the word settlement is the bad guys figured out long ago that they could manipulate this way in front of when the government uh, figured out that it could be manipulated. Now the reason the government, the reason our regulators are so historically blasé about the amount of that slop there is, is because of something called the efficient market hypothesis. Then if you've been to law school or business school in the last 30 years, you've been exposed to EMH. EMH, in fact, two more guys just won the Nobel Prize for EMH, and there have been others before them. <clears throat> efficient market theory holds that for every security, there is an intrinsic value, but at any given time, there's, the price can be varying all over. And the difference between the price and the actual value is the volatility. It's called beta. If you follow the stock market, the beta. It's a, if you're an engineer, you can think of it as the noise in the system. So imagine under regulatory regime A, you have that amount of beta. Under regulatory regime B, you have this amount of beta. And you take the area under the curve of A, and you compare it to the area under the curve of B, 
And it, well, B is smaller than A, therefore there's less noise in the system, it's more efficient. That's how the regulators think of all this. Now, because they think this way, because that is their paradigm, by the way, I should tell you that, say, Warren Buffett has said, if you believe in this, then prices are always efficient. You can't find discrepancies in the market. You can't find a $20 bill because if it were on the street because if it were there, someone else would have picked it up already. Warren Buffett says competing with people who believe EMH is like playing bridge with people who've been told it doesn't help to look at cards. Uh, so because this is their paradigm, they worship at the altar of liquidity. And if you've been following in detail the Wall Street stuff over the last five years and fights about regulation, a lot of it has to do with liquidity. We need liquidity because the more liquidity there is, so this paradigm says, the more liquidity there is, the more this volatility gets squeezed out of the system and more accurate prices get. Well, first of all, there was recently an article in Journal of Finance that says the U.S. capital markets reached adequate liquidity beyond which there has not been an improvement in the volatility in the 1960s. So, in addition, it's because of that paradigm that the regulators have been so enamored towards uh, such things as you're, you've heard of like high frequency trading and algorithmic trading. Uh, I'm not, because they provide this liquidity, I'm not sure that what they provide is liquidity. I'm not sure that having one computer sell back and forth from one pocket to another 10,000 times a second is actually adding liquidity. Or, you know, it literally comes down to who has the supercomputer that's closer than the other guys, because light travels at 11 inches in a billionth of a second. So these, it, depending on where the computers are in New York, actually gives you an egg. And somebody turns out they just made a bunch of money by setting up a microwave link from Chicago that was beating the fiber optic link by a 10,000th of a second. And they're able to front run the market. And in fact, all that liquidity, I think, is just high, it's nuclear powered front running. I'm not sure it actually adds anything to the marketplace. And like I say, there was an article that came out Journal of Finance, I think it was, just in the last year, saying, well, actually, the liquidity we've put into the market past the 1960s has not done anything. And along the same lines, I'll mention Paul Volcker has said, uh, how do you put it? I mean, so many financial innovations get sold on the basis of, well, they improve liquidity. You can't change these rules. You've got to have that, that fault tolerance in the system because you need the liquidity. Well, Paul Volcker has said the last financial innovation that actually adds value to society was the ATM card. All these other things that you, that these innovations, they really don't add value. They're, they're way, different ways of front-running the public. They're different, creating enormously complex instruments that nobody understands, but lets these sort of $500,000 a year quants just suck money out of the marketplace. So this is just one paradox. There's another paradigm. That's a graduate school economics, that the, the finance. There's a college economics I'll take you back to, which is much simpler. Price, quantity, supply, demand. Perhaps, well, under this paradigm, there are times where the value, <coughs> see, under this, under this paradigm, the value of any security is, a, is basically the market's collective guess about the present uh, about the future cash flows of an instrument discounted to the present. And it's just a big collective uh, bet on that. 
under this, and that's what's setting security prices. In this paradigm, it's more like sacks of potatoes, like you learn around, about in college economics, supply and demand uh, for a security where they meet. That establishes a price. When someone shows up, when a hedge fund shows up into the marketplace, or anybody, and as you'll learn, this is uh, a lot of this is shifted offshore, uh, and there's ways that people offshore can do this into our markets. As they generate failures to deliver, it shifts the supply curve to the right. Well, when you shift the supply curve to the right, and these will be, hopefully, there, you won't see too many graphs after that. When you shift the supply curve to the right, look where supply and demand cross. You drop. And if you pick a financial institution, which has one unit of actual equity or book value with about 30 units of leverage stacked up on it, and those layers of leverage are very carefully matched to you know, the assets of a bank is, a, is an enormously complex layer, uh, uh, sets of layers of, of assets and liabilities. And the bankers basically spend all their time trying to match the, the, the risks and, the, and uh, the interest, the yields of these different layers. And if everything works, they're getting, you know, 60 cents out the bottom for every $100 stack. If, so it's really carefully balanced. But if you can show up and distort the market like this and swamp it uh, with FTD, you might be able to crack in, in a, a financial company, you crack it through a certain price, at which point it's just going to spiral. <clears throat> so that's called naked short selling. And I hate this phrase, naked short selling, in the same way that imagine someone who was out there campaigning against sexual harassment was accused of, ah, oh, you just don't like sex. Well, sexual harassment isn't a type of sex. A sea lion is not a type of lion. Naked short selling is not really a type of short selling. It's something else entirely. It's a, it's a way to manipulate the market. And people answer by saying, oh, you don't like short selling. I'm totally indifferent to short selling. Short selling is fine. It's not what this, it's not what this is about. In 2011, The Economist started finally, the um, first major media organization started getting this. And they wrote a um, very significant story about America's dodgy financial plumbing, too big a fail count, the sheer number of unsettled trades is rattling regulators. And at that point, they put the number at $200 billion of these failed settlements across the system. Uh, spiking to 600 billion in 2008. That's actually small potatoes for two reasons. One, a 200 billion dollar settlement problem does not cost 200 billion dollars to clean up. Just like if somebody spilled, <clears throat> somebody spilled two million dollars of radium out there in the street, or two million dollars worth of ricin, it doesn't mean it costs two million dollars to clean it up. Secondly, the federal government, I know, as of about three years ago, really did not understand all the nooks and crannies where these things were hiding. So for those two reasons, this could be considered a multi-trillion dollar problem, but the nominal value of $200 billion. So now I'm going to switch. So that's naked short selling in a nutshell, or not such a nutshell. Uh, now I'm going to switch to talking about the bust out. And this is another really important, if there's any note you take, I hope it's you understand bust out. It is, it's a mafia term. 
it's, uh, well, I could talk for another 15 minutes at that, but instead I have a two-minute montage of clips from uh, The Sopranos and Goodfellow. It's three clips that explain this beautifully. Hey, Pop, with the rum lotion. Put three cases of that in my car. Yeah. That's not a mistake. No, I, I want another 14 gross at the bottom number of 478. Imagine your time at the USA when you get... Just ship them. I'll worry about selling When's one of these vendors going to realize I'm never going to pay them and call the cops? Well, your credit runs out of diamond, Jim. Until then, get a on an order. Unless you're ready to pay us the principal you owe us. You want me to be a partner? That's what you're trying to tell me. You want me to be a partner? Yeah, what the f do you think I'm talking about, Paulie? Please, come on. Maybe I'll, I'll try to help you, all right? God bless you, Paulie. I appreciate it. God bless you. Always been fair with Now the guy's got Paulie as a partner. Any problems, he goes to Paulie. Trouble with the bill, he can go to Paulie. Trouble with the cops, deliveries, Tommy, he can call Paulie. But now the guy's got to come up with Paulie's money every week, no matter what. Also, Paulie could do anything, especially run up bills on the joint's credit. And why not? Nobody's going to pay for it anyway. And as soon as the deliveries are made in the front door, you move the stuff out the back and sell it at a discount. You take a $200 case of booze and you sell it for $100. Doesn't matter, it's all profit. And then finally, when there's nothing left, and you can't borrow another buck from the bank or buy another case of booze, you bust the joint out. You light a match. You don't reach anything? You look like you're decorating a Christmas tree. Get on it, don't you? What's the end? The end? It's planned bankruptcy. got to get busted out. This is how a guy like me makes a living. This is my bread and butter. So that's the bust out in low finance. It's a well-known term from organized crime. The bust out pattern is leveraging, getting an inside man generally out of business or getting a business to owe you in some way, leveraging the business up, draining the cash out, burning it down for more profit, either literally or as you'll see metaphorically. It's a way of plundering a business, and it's my thesis that this has gone on against the United States. <clears throat> so the, the intermediary step, though, was the bust-out entered high finance in the 1980s. Uh, it entered in the form of a fellow named Michael Milken. And if you don't believe me, here is the FDIC action against Milken from 1991, beginning in at least 1982, the Milken Group willfully, deliberately, and systematically plundered certain SNLs. The Milken Group targeted the SNLs because their deposits provided the SNLs with an enormous pool of capital. And that's exactly it. To a significant degree, the SNL crisis that we remember, although there was bad regulation and bad guys like Charles Keating and bad senators protecting them, there were, it was a bust step to a significant degree, found the FDIC. It was actually a planned bust-out of looting the SNL industry. Wonderful uh, book on this by Benjamin Stein, who you see on TV sometimes. The Milken Group was really more similar to the species that investigative journalist Stephen Pizzo called the artist of the bust-out than to the steel magnates. That's absolutely true. Michael Milken is not a businessman. He's a guy who figured out how to take this from low finance to high finance. Two more 
oh, in the final analysis, the true similarity between Milkenism and organized crime can be found in the mindset of Michael Milken and his colleagues and the use of underworld tactics of the con and the shakedown, the swindle and the heist in the world of finance on a national and international scale. <clears throat> Another two books, absolutely hope if you're students of economic warfare, you have to pick up these books because they're handbooks on what I'm talking about. Den of Thieves, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and The Predator's Ball by Connie Brook. Two fabulous handbooks teaching this whole thing. And what Milken did was just he took these street corner organized crime techniques and figured out how to do it to SNLs and insurance companies and so forth. Uh, and that's, again, not me. That's alone saying that. It's the FDIC and, and these various authors. And there's so many techniques in these books. I think that a great deal of what's happening is actually this kind of stuff just written large. So I really suggest reading at least the bottom two books, Den of Thieves especially. <clears throat> Incidentally, that's the explanation of the red pill. That's how the shill planers knew. That's how Milberg Weiss knew. Because there is a ring, an organized ring of hedge funds who, fit, who, who continued these techniques. Uh, they went after companies. Milberg Weiss, this law firm, was in on it. They target companies. They target them with naked short selling. They seem to have had certain regulators on speed dial and could order up investigations on companies, naked short them, do these various bust out techniques, and, law, and this law firm would be putting placing its plaintiffs weeks or months ahead of time with the knowledge that these are the companies that are going to be attacked, and that's how, that's how they know. <clears throat> Let me show you a, one of the bust-outs in action, a very famous one. Uh, underneath our capital market, I mentioned that there are clearing brokers, that is, brokers who are connected to the DTCC, and then other broker-dealers wire through them, and they clear through them, so they're clearing brokers. Some years ago, the largest clearing broker in America was a group called MJK Clearing. Largest clearing brokerage in America entered into a very strange uh, collateralized arrangement with two companies, Native Nation Securities and Genesis Intermedia. Native Nations, whereby, 100, whereby $150 million of cash was loaned and re, was high, basically hypothecated and rehypothecated to Genesis, and $150 million of worthless stock was given back as collateral. <clears throat> that, uh, that was the equivalent of setting a, I like this metaphor of a railway trellis, and somebody has set a C4 charge against it. That deal, and it was very strange that they would enter that deal. It made no bit economic sense uh, for them to do it as you will see, but that was like setting a satchel against a trellis underneath the main clearing agency uh, in our national, one of the main, clear well, I, I will at least say one of the major clearing brokers, I'm actually told it was the largest clearing broker in the United States, but I haven't confirmed that, but it was at least one of the largest. That stock was naked short sold to nothing. Genesis collapsed and a rippling wave of bankruptcy spread through the system and collapsed MJK clearing, which was like setting off that C4 charge, which cracked that pillar and nearly broke that and brought down our national capital market. 
two interesting things to know about this. One is when did it happen? Remember I said that clearing occurs on a T plus 3, but it's really T plus 13, 13 days after the trade? This happened, on, MJK went down on September 28, 2001. If you count back 13 days, 13 trading days, you get to September 11, 2001. And in fact, for a few days before then, from the publicly available data, this seems to have somebody was turning up the starting this maybe a few days before September 11. That's one thing to know. The other is who did it? Well, the SEC, in their action, said there was an inside man at MJK named Thomas Brooks. Genesis was run CEO guy named Batwami and Rafi Khan, two luminaries who uh, both worked at Global Securities, which is a Vancouver brokerage house with umpteen actions against it by the Canadian government for all kinds of nefarious activity, uh, mob-related activity. Rafi Khan worked at J.B. Oxford, which sounds like a nice button-down voice, J.B. Oxford. In fact, it was the largest mafia brokerage in the 1990s. And when I say that, I'm not making this up. This is the Department of... of they, they collapsed under a DOJ indictment for being a front for the mafia. Uh, it was also... It was owned by a fellow named Adnan Khashoggi. Adnan Khashoggi, the old timers here, will remember from the BCCI days, which was, if you don't, if you're probably going to start anywhere, you'd start with a bank that started in 1972, BCCI, which was a global bank that was the banker of choice for every arms dealer and narco terrorist and money launderer and everything, but they all banked through BCCI. Native Nations was run by a woman named Valerie Redhorse. Two interesting things about her. One was she was the model for Pocahontas, literally. She was the Mattel Pocahontas doll. But besides that distinction, she, in the 19, she spent the 1980s as an office manager, as the office manager of the LA office of Drexel Burnham Lambert, i.e. she worked for Michael Milken. <clears throat> so that's the pattern of a bust out. Leveraging a business up, depleting it of cash, burning it down metaphorically or literally for more profit. It's a way of plundering an economic enterprise. <clears throat> now, I'm going to move to subprime. Subprime mortgage fraud. Uh, if we had, in World War II, if Hitler's number two, I don't know who that would be, Goebbels or Himmler or somebody, if that person's number two had had a little brother in America that was selling defective steel into our bridges and infrastructure that was collapsing, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that that was a deliberate, that wasn't just a coincidence. Well, the subprime mortgage fraud, start with Al-Qaeda, when reading this, start with Al-Qaeda in Iraq had the number one was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was killed in 2006. Uh, his number two was Shaki Omar. Shaki Omar's baby brother was Sharif Omar or is Sharif Omar. Sharif Omar, guess where he spent the last decade? He spent it in Utah running a mortgage fraud ring. And in fact, all across the United States, there have been Hamas, Hezbollah, and Islamic Jihad mortgage, running mortgage fraud rings. And prosecutors have figured this out. And there's this, uh, in this case, financial experts say the mortgage fraud has become the fastest growing type of white collar crime. And terrorist organizations have been quick to jump on the trend, but what concerns federal authorities 
is how regularly mortgage fraud is showing up in terrorism investigations. Well, they are scattered, you know, mortgage fraud rings are all through the Midwest and, and Detroit and, and so forth have actually been run, have been by these entities. As far as I could tell, as of a few years ago, the federal conception of that was that this was a way to make money to send back and fund their jihad. But now, let me talk about synthetic collateralized debt obligations. And if you remember, or in case you didn't follow the, the mortgage, the subprime, that's too closely. <clears throat> there is the meat, which is the actual mortgages that were generated, got packed into sausages. And the sausages are the mortgage-backed securities. So you can think of those mortgage-backed securities as sausages packed with this meat. Well, besides the sausages and mortgage-backed securities, there were hypothetical sausages called collateralized debt obligations, which were slices, mathematical representations of different slices of different mortgage-backed securities. And on top of those, there was another level of, of hypothesis called synthetic CDOs, which were hypothetical sausages with math that were mathematical representations of, no, they were hypothetical hypothetical sausages that represented hypothetical sausages that represented real sausages which had real meat in it. However, the synthetic collateralized debt obligations were disproportionately stuffed, not with a cross-section of every all the mortgages being generated, but by the mystery meat that was being generated by the mortgage fraud rigs, the, the, the really bad, ugly stuff. And by the say again? Some things are more equal than others. Yeah, right. Uh, by the way, this is all according to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, who said that this is the epicenter of the subprime mess. So the subprime mess didn't start because there was a spike in default rates. In fact, default rates were staying around 8%, where they had this 6 to 8% is where they historically were. It started in this corner uh, in the synthetic collateralized debt obligation market. That was the epicenter of the subprime crisis. That's where it all started crashing. Uh, now, we've heard of people like Goldman created some of this on behalf of a guy named Paulson and some, some self-destruct CEOs for which they were fined $550 million. And there are other examples like that. But they were actually not the big players. The creator of this, and one of the biggest, if not the biggest player, was Princeton Advisory. Again, it sounds like some nice button-down guys. Uh, Princeton Advisory, who was the main player in this, in stuffing the mystery meat into the, or really finding the mystery meat scattered through the system and creating uh, synthetic CDOs that mirrored the results of that mystery meat, Princeton Advisory was founded and run by a guy named Salim Manzar. He's Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he's a trustee of the Amana Trust, whom the federal government took action against as being a front for a whole bunch of jihadi uh, you know, money, money guys. Chairman is Yaqub Mirza, bagman for Yasin al-Qadi, who is the first DOJ specially designated global terrorist in the world. Uh, owner, by, owner of, no, it was owned by the Islamic Society of North America which also had all kinds of actions against it, which also owns North American Islamic Trust, again, uh, both named unindicted co-conspirators by the, by the Department of Justice. 
uh, see the Holy Land Foundation case. This is that crew. In fact, it's the SAR network. If you're familiar with economic warfare, you know the SAR network. And the SAR network is the group, another group that DOJ went after is this network or syndicate of, of these kind of people. That, and they're money, they're money people in, in the United States uh, with these kinds of ties. And they really are the old BCCI people with new business cards and some new luminaries like Daiwood Ibrahim, who is the only man in the world to be both a specially designated global terrorist and a global narcotics kingpin. So this is the, this is the crowd that was around the synthetic CDO market, which the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission says is, where the, is the epicenter of the earthquake that started in 2008. Now, it's really interesting. There was naked short selling in 2008. <clears throat> uh, massive amounts started with a small brokerage in Chicago named Tuco Trading. Now, in March 2008, the SEC stepped in and shut them down by emergency order for, quote, massively exceeding margin limits, unquote. Tuco Trading, the bankruptcy judge, appointed the bankruptcy lawyer to dig through the rubble. And that fellow got very excited and submitted a report to the bankruptcy court, then immediately had a stroke and was not able to complete his work. And, there, and there's no, as of at least a few years ago, there was no evidence that this was doing anything but gathering dust, that the SEC, in some SEC basement, that the SEC had, uh, had thought they had done their job just when they shut this down. Well, the bankruptcy lawyer who went through the rubble and wrote the report to the court says that the clients of Tuco Trading are overwhelmingly people like Hajman Hamidi, an Iranian with deep ties to Revolutionary Guard, lines overseas management. In 2010, the summer of 2010, the federal government arrested 10 Russian spies. Remember that? Two of them worked there. Jamie Caputo, who's a business partner of Rick Kislin, who's part of the Ivankov gang. And Ivankov is the guy, the Russian organized crime figure who came colonized the U.S. for Russian OC in 1992. Later, 2009, he was <coughs> iced on the streets of Moscow, pardon the pun, uh, sniper bullet in the chest, shortly after giving an interview where he had said that he had been connected to FSB all along, Russian intelligence all along. Sergei Maximov, who worked both for a, a uh, oligarch named Roman Abramovich, who's one of the major uh, oligarchs and bad guy oligarchs, don't know if they're any good, and Semi Mogilevich, who's on the FBI 10 Most Wanted list. And incidentally, what put him on the FBI 10 Most Wanted list was his involvement in a Philadelphia company called YBM Magnix, which, which was a pump and dump based on exactly all the things I'm talking about, market manipulation, including naked short selling. That was Semyon Mogilevich, who may be the worst human being in the world. He's the godfather of Russian OC and gun running and slavery and drug and everything you can think of. But the thing that actually got him was his involvement in YBM Magnets is what got him on the FBI Most Wanted list. So Tuco didn't self-clear. It did its trading through Penson, through a brokerage house called Penson, which now is, I do believe, under the subject of some federal scrutiny, Wed Butch Morgan, uh, through these two brokerage houses, which themselves cleared through a notable brokerage named 
Bernard L. Madoff securities. <clears throat> now, what's really the, the, the party line on Bernie Madoff, he, he occupied the 16th, 17th, and 18th floors of the building he was in in New York. And he had two businesses, a money management business, on the, the dirty business, on the 17th floor, and his brokerage, which was on the 16th and 18th. <clears throat> and they are, say the party line, they were clean. But the 17th floor was where all the dirt is. I don't believe that for a variety of reasons, one of which is the stock loan desk. Any, every brokerage house, this all runs through a part of the financial system called stock loan. And it should have been in the brokerage house, i.e. the 16th or 18th floor, but uh, uniquely, that, that piece of the brokerage house was on the 17th floor, i.e. with the dirty money management business. And there's a lot of other reasons that it's a very bad sign. That this, so, in other words, in 2008, as everything started to crater, a river, a torrent of naked short selling was directed against the pillars of the American financial system. Much of that, the source of that uh, river was Tuco trading representing the trading of these kinds of people. And it went through a daisy chain of clearing until it ended up in Bernard L. Madoff Securities, uh, who was basically vouching for it all to the... So if, at the risk of being... And I'm not, I should preface this, saying I'm not a conspiracy guy by nature. I don't see conspiracies everywhere. But it's hard to look at this and not see the narrative arc of a bust out. If you want an org chart, it looks like this. Cosa Nostra, you all know, I'm sure, there's in the US five Italian mafia families, Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchesi. Wall Street had a fight between, between the Genovese and the Gambinos in the 1990s. The Genovese's won. There was an, if this sounds improbable, there was the largest FBI sweep of the mafia in history was Operation Uptick and they picked up 120 mafia characters on Wall Street, uh, including Gene Phillips, very, very best friend of guy named Michael Milken. Started by a mistake made by a fellow named Felix Sater, a Russian organized crime figure in Long Island, who made a mistake, left a gym bag behind somewhere, had some handguns in it in New York City and some paperwork, and the, the guy, somebody called the police because of the handguns. The paperwork turned out to detail a bunch of these schemes. Wherever you have Genovese, you have Russian organized crime. As again, I assume people here, anyone in the, or in the economic warfare community or law enforcement know, uh, the Genovese sponsored Russian organized crime coming into the United States like you and I would sponsor a family from Laos coming into the United States. They brought them in. There's a fabulous book about this named Red Mafia, uh, How the Russian Mob Invaded America. Robert Friedman. Here over this book is Robert Levinson, who was at the Russian OC desk at an, an FBI, now the fellow missing in Iran. Robert Friedman opens the book. It's really quite tragic. He opens the book saying, it's about 2000, this was written. He opens the book saying, I got a, he was a great investigative journalist. And he, he, wrote, he opened the book saying, I got a phone call from the FBI saying we have a Russian OC figure in the federal pen. We've been intercepted communications that they're planning on killing you. And so I, Robert Friedman, went to confront this fellow in the federal pen, and I spent four hours with him, and I said, no, what happens in the Ukraine, what happens in Moscow doesn't happen in America. What happens in the Ukraine doesn't happen in America. You don't threaten journalists, et cetera, et cetera. 
published the book six months later, died of a rare and previously undiagnosed blood disease. I understand that David Ignatius, whom I'm sure is known to you folks, knows quite a bit about this book and Robert Friedman. And uh, evidently Friedman went out saying the, the Russians got me. Uh, and the Russian mafia, there are, we have a website, as Frank mentioned, called Deep Capture, and there's a wonderful journalist here with me, former journalist for Time, Wall Street Journal, Far East Asian Economic Review, and I met him at Columbia School of Journalism, uh, where he was an editor, but who joined forces with me, and we've started a website called Deep Capture. It's been named the number one website, business investigative journalism in America, number one website on corruption, number one all kinds of things. Uh, and we're hundreds and hundreds of pages of establishing these kinds of links. Uh, of course, there's, a, there's something by Admiral Dennis Blair, I'll get to in a moment, a quote. But before I move on, I just have to mention pretty much everywhere you go through here, everywhere you dig in, you come on business associates of a fellow named Michael Milken, from the guy who was the president of Cinex, if you remember the Bank of New York scandal where they were caught laundering $10 billion for Russian organized crime, paid a massive fine. That money was basically cleaned up, cleaned up and put in Bank of New York, which was sending it to Russia. And the steps through, there were various brokerage houses which were doing the cleaning. And the way the cleaning uh, occurs is through these techniques I'm talking about. And anyway, and the president of that is Gene Phillips, best buddies of Michael Milken. Uh, and on and on and on, you find him and his people scattered through this. this. So Dennis Blair, as director of national intelligence, said, spoke of the growing threat from international organized crime, the nexus between international criminal organizations and terrorist groups presents continuing dangers. IOC will almost certainly increase its penetration of legitimate financial and commercial interests, threatening US economic interests and raising the risk of damage to the global financial system. In 2011, President Obama signed an executive order, which I quite liked, saying, I, Barack Obama, find that transnational organizations threaten the stability of international financial system, represent an extraordinary threat to the United States and declare an emergency. But what I like most of all is BHL. Who I like most of all is BHL. BHL is Bernard Henri Bernard Levy, the foremost French philosopher. And, and uh, there's basically Sartre, Camus, Foucault, Derrida, and Bernard Henri Levy, who, if you're cool, everybody calls BHL. He's the fellow who, there was a, there was a uh, documentary about him about six or seven years ago. French intellectual, he's the one who shamed Sarkozy and the bombing of Libya some years back, uh, and, on, uh, and a good guy. He wrote a book called Who Killed Daniel Pearl? And you know, Daniel Pearl was beheaded for what seemed like a number of obvious reasons. He was Jewish, American, journalist, working for the Wall Street Journal in Pakistan. What other reasons does someone need? Well. Bernard Henri BHL re retraced the last two years of Daniel Pearl's life and invites one to believe that maybe that's not why Daniel Pearl was killed. Daniel Pearl was killed because he was on to the story of the lifetime. And the story of the lifetime, which sounded improbable 10 years ago, 
was that there was far more cooperation among a syndicate of people of ranging from you know, Sunni, respectable Sunni financiers, Pakistani ISI, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, uh, rogue nuclear, Pakistani nuclear scientists, and the Iranian regime. That's why he was killed. That's the story that he seemed to have been on. And he had an experience quite a bit like mine and ours, and I won't read, but I'll read the whole thing. But at the bottom of which, when you get to page 500 of this book, there's this very interesting paragraph where he describes the feeling that I know my colleagues and I have been, uh, has overcome us in looking at this. And it's at the bottom of each new deck, there's always a new trap door opening beneath our feet. Uh, behind the ultimate screen, always another screen that pulls us away into the spiral of this vertigo of evil. Uh, unless he is too sucked in this hole, swallowed in this matrix, carried off on this nightmare ride, the intoxication of a mystery that ends by thinning out to nothing. Well, that's exactly the experience that my friend Mark Mitchell and I have had. Where's Mark, by the way? Ah. Uh, that we started, Mar I started this fight for sort of I, reasons of my own, and then this journalist ended up sort of leaving his world and joining mine. And we started pulling on these threads, and the threads led to this cloud, and I feel like we were walking up a mountain ridge in the fog, and we walked up one ridge together over six or seven years, and we got to the top, and there was BHL having lost his way, but coming up the other side. And I was lucky to have lunch with BHL a couple months ago. And one of the things he said was, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. <laughs> I'm so clever. So uh, that settlement, the, the reason that we haven't done, uh, the government has act, not acted aggressively enough is in part their intellectual cloud of efficient market theory. But really because, uh, put it this way, the blue line is a measure of the slop in the system from 2004 through early 2009. The red line is a measure of the profitability of the stock loan desks of Wall Street. Stock loan is the last great Wall Street business. All the agency businesses are gone. They used to make 10 cents a share as commission trading stocks. Now they're getting paid a hundredth of a cent a, cent a share, a thousandth of a cent. IPOs pay for themselves, M&As, so forth. There's not much money in those. The, only, the great profit center on Wall Street, the one business that's left, is the stock loaning desk, which is the desk through which this slop runs. And the profitability of Wall Street depends on not cleaning up, not tightening the rules around this slop. So that's the fundamental Maoist contradiction, to use Maoist term. Our national security depends on, or is at loggerheads, with letting her be slop in the settlement system. But the slop in the settlement system equates with brokerage profits. And that's why it's such it has been such a difficult problem to address. So with that, I hope you enjoyed the red pill and I'd be happy to take any questions. Probably no questions after that. Sir? We spoke briefly uh, concerning the parallel and naked short selling of stocks with some of what goes on in the uh, commodity futures markets with gold and silver. 
and the naked short selling in the sense of contracts to deliver in the future gold and silver that doesn't exist and being used to artificially, artificially suppress the perceived values of those metals that constitutionally are actually money. And I wonder if you could comment on the perspective that in a sense in the last hundred years under the Federal Reserve System where the dollar, Federal Reserve dollars or notes were redeemable for gold and silver, we transitioned to where just as a failure to deliver FTD, failure to deliver stock, the Federal Reserve note has become a failure to deliver actual money. Uh, well, it delivers credit, which acts like money, but the capacity for inflating it is becoming disruptive. At the the comparison has occurred to me more than once. What we're talking about when we're talking about this naked short selling and problems in the settlement system is it's basically fractional reserve banking without a reserve requirement. And there is certainly a theory. In, on Wall Street that there's far more gold and silver being sold than actually exists and that an enormous naked short position is building up. J.P. Morgan is routinely accused of being a big part of this. Maybe the government itself wants it. I don't have the data, so I can't say much about that because I'm not privy to the data. I would love to know what the data is, but I, I do know that people, there's, for example, an ETF GL, called GLD, that represents gold. And they used to claim, I don't know if they still claim, but that for every, when you buy, if you want to invest in gold, just buy one of our ETF shares. It's a share exchange traded fund. It's like buying gold. And that we're back one to one. Well, there's no way. There was a volume analysis done of how much trading there is in the GLD versus the actual volume. And there, there's no way they're, they're keeping that one to one. Uh, so there is all this apocrypha around the trading of gold and silver that suggests that there is a huge suppression effort, or the people who believe this believe there's a huge suppression effort going on, but I don't have the data, and I've not seen, the data is not publicly available that would say one way or another, but maybe, maybe that is the data, <laughs> the fact that they won't release the data. Sir? Excuse me, uh, two questions, please. First, uh, I'm curious why Pope in your in, in your lecture and on your site, you seem to treat Warren Buffett, Buffett as an avuncular pleasant fellow. Uh, don't you think that he pays the play as well, especially with the, the current administration? The second question is, where do you see in the current uh, executive branch of the United States government Pick, pick the agency, FBI, SEC, the Treasury, any others. Where do you see any willingness or any will to go after the things you've outlined here today and for years on your site? Well, first question on Warren Buffett. I treat him so nicely because I love him. Buffett, I was lucky when I was 13. Buffett and I met. It was before anyone. He was not a famous guy. His name had never been in the paper. But he, he met and he sort of took me under his wing and he has been my great Dutch uncle in life. And I worked for him and my whole world vision comes back to, I mean, I look back, well, I was about 25 when his name started appearing in the press and we started, to me, he was just this fellow who I would write long letters to, he would write response, I would go visit him and stuff. So he, he will always have, after my parents, he's sort of the, my closest adult figure and, and mentor. Uh, so uh, some people have accused me of letting him off the hook 
on this. He has not, uh, well, I, I always let Buffett speak for himself. And Buffett, uh, we have kind of a deal that I can talk about the things he teaches me, but I don't talk about our personal, you know, our discussions and things like this. On the question of who in the federal government, I would say anyone but the SEC. But there are other reasons for that. The, the, in the, I believe, and I'm not privy to anything in the federal government, but actually I think I'd like to punt that to my friend and partner in Robert Shapiro, who is, as I said earlier, Undersecretary of Commerce for Economics, the great architect of the Clinton economy, and quite familiar with what's going on in Washington about these problems. So I'll punt to Dr. Shapiro. Well, I will tell you one story there. Um, about, a, about a year after the financial crisis, I went in to see Mary Shapiro, um, who had just come in as head of the SEC. And um, I was talking to her about naked short sales and the role of naked short sales in the financial crisis. Um, and indeed, we had done research that showed that in the last month, uh, before both Bear Stearns went down and Lehman Brothers went down, the volume of short sales, of shorts out against each of those companies six months apart, went up four times, and the vibe but the share that were naked went up 50 times. And so that by the time of their collapse, more than half of all the shorts outstanding against those institutions were naked. Um, and that this suggested that the uh, SEC's efforts to tighten naked <laughs> uh, short selling, particularly in crisis situations, had failed. And she said, this is very interesting. I want you to come and testify next week. And they were having a hearing at the SEC. So I said, fine, and I went. And the um, hearing was held, was run by the then director of the Division of Enforcement who had designed the regulations. Uh, Not Jamie, but uh, no. you don't want to say probably. Um, and uh, there were four economists, and the first three all talked about the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, and I have to note that when the two gentlemen who won the Nobel for the efficient market hypothesis they were joined by a third, uh, Bob Schiller, who in fact rejects it, has been very critical of the hypothesis. And but they all defended and said, well, there's no evidence from the crisis that uh, that the, the markets are not efficient. So in fact, it, it, it's definitely. And then I was the last one, and I said, well, you know, when two major asset markets become utterly dysfunctional, that suggests that is not operating, but moreover, and I started to describe the role of naked shorts in the, not in the failure of those companies, but in the chaotic way in which they collapsed. The, the financial crisis was not caused by their failures, it was caused by the manner of their failures. If you compare that, for example, to the orderliness of the bankruptcy of General Motors, which had no effect, no adverse um, in any event, I was in the middle of this, and the guy running the hearing <coughs> stops and says, your time is up. And I said, well, I have to go two more minutes. He said, no, your time is up. You cannot go on. 
I mean, literally, literally turned off the microphone rather than allow this to enter the record of the hearing. So the SEC, but the SEC has a constituency, and the constituency is the largest constituency on Wall Street. Um, and their goal is as little regulation as possible, and in particular in this area, and you're absolutely right, the um, um, uh, stock loan, which is the way people get shares to short, um, used to be the second, second uh, most profitable line on Wall Street after proprietary trading. Proprietary trading is now gone, so you're left with, um, with that. And um, the, uh, the SEC has recognized the nature of the problem and the dimensions of the problem going back to when I first started talking to them about it in 2003. Um, and has done everything it possibly could to appear to regulate it without actually um, setting any constraints on um, uh, on the operations. Last comment. I don't believe, you know, I think they're doing it at the past of Wall Street. Uh, there is, of course, you know, a lot of transit from the SEC to Wall Street. Um, and, you know, people like to preserve their options. Um, uh, the, um, that is, the SEC is in bed with Wall Street as Wall Street is in bed with the guys you described, not the SEC. That's well said. Well, better than I could have said. There are so many bizarre stories about this. But I, I, please do not count on the SEC. This is so far beyond the SEC. If you go on YouTube, you will see CNBC once had me on to debate the chief economist of the SEC. And I think you will see, if I say so myself, that I crushed this guy. And, he, and you know, I thumped him like a little baby seal. There's no intellectual respectability of this position, and it, but so, but they're never going to solve it. I really think it's a national security problem, if the, and that's the problem. Everybody, everybody, you know, you you get radar. I I worked for Buffett actually, and part of my job with Buffett ended up putting me at loggerheads. I've crossed mafia in my life, and I'm not talking about people who his last name in the Val. I mean. People under DOJ indictments and organizations for being mob, racketeering and stuff. And it has a certain feel. Warren Buffett says sometimes crooks just look like crooks. And I mean, I've, I've been, you come across, if you have a certain type of radar, it's not that hard. I, in the early 90s, in about 91, I was sitting in Dubai. I happened to meet some Americans in a fledgling financial, in the fledgling financial industry at the time, and they asked me to lunch, and over lunch, one of the fellows, and they were real slick, Harvard MBA, but real slick, slickster guys, and one of them said something about, you know, we could make a lot of money together. There's this technical thing we have to get around, and an American citizen is not supposed to be doing any oil trading with Libya or Iran, but there's a solution to that, and they went on to describe it, and kept talking, and I had to, I had to really stop for a moment, and say, and what did you just say? <laughs> More of that goes on. You see, crooks can't, crooks don't always keep it secret. Crooks have to, oppressed minorities have to have signals. They have to have ways to signal each other, to find each other in many cases. 
and they're putting out signals. And any time you get around the settlement system, you just come across an element that you think, what are these people doing in the financial in this corner of the financial? But boy, that's everything to do with this. For example, one of the first. And I hate to bring this. I hope you understand. This isn't about overstock. It's not about overstock. It's not about our, our stock went down, our stock has gone up, made a bunch of money, we're very profitable, great company. That doesn't make me right. Just like when we were losing money and our stock went down, it didn't make me wrong. Although that mental leap is a little bit more than most journalists can make. <laughs> uh, but so, for example, I, something started going on that made me start paying attention to this. Something was going on in the Chicago Board of Options. And I got a phone call, and I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends scattered throughout Wall Street who helped me through this stuff through the middle of the last decade. And a woman called me, said, just want you to know where this is coming from. It's two guys in Chicago Board of Options. They're the most sanctioned fellows in Chicago, which is no small thing. And they were sanctioned for, it turns out that they were fronting for money from FARC, Patrick. And that's what they're from, the Columbia guys, Columbia drug lords. Okay, well, why would those kind of guys have, have picked me? And I, I mean, I just put that in the back of my mind. Well, I could sit here all night and tell you the stories that started accumulating of, of, tripping, over, of tripping over those kinds of people. And so, I get, and so Mark Mitchell here has ended up writing hundreds, maybe thousands of pages. Where, where, but those are the people you're talking about when you get into these settle, questions of settlement. And it's way, way, way beyond the SEC to solve this. FBI does have people, I think, who understand that. But what you need are some PhDs in finance. And the PhDs in finance and math are getting you know, a quarter million dollar, half million dollar entry level jobs if you understand the math behind all this. So anyway, don't look to the SEC for any help. Sir. I'm going to I saw an update uh, a few days ago on television about the Madoff family, and I'm wondering how aware are you of them presently, and do you have any further explanation of the one son's suicide? Um, and then I'm just wondering, those involved Jewish, them, uh, and then the Islamic jihadists, how much aware are they of each other, and does religion just go up the window here, I mean, as far as uh, money and greed and uh, overseas, see, over, <laughs> goes over religion, politics, security, everything else. I, I think they're the beer, the religion is the beer jingle. When you, to, it's beer jingle for these people, or you, to get 18-year-old kid to put a, dyna, a vest on his chest with dynamite and get him blow himself up, you need a beer jingle. This is all about mafias. Uh, you remember the great intellectual battle between Samuel Huntington, uh, who said, look, the fundamental agent in international relations isn't the state, it's the clash of civilizations. And Fuad Ajmi, who was a very dear friend of mine, wrote a beautiful response some years later, saying, no, the fundamental agent is really our nation states. I think it's even more extreme than that. It's behind many of the nation states we see there's really just mafias. Iran has. In the, in the Vatican as well, do you believe? I don't have an. You know, I do try to stay away from the religion. I think that it's like, well, like Iran has three mafias: the mullahs, the moderates, and the Rashidjanis. And Russia has it. And I think it's all a big 
racket. And I, by the way, I think these guys bank in Lebanon. If I were to go after them, I would be... Lebanon, there was an Egyptian intellectual in the 50s who said that uh, Egypt is the only nation in the Middle East. The rest are just tribes with flags. Well, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East for various strange reasons, and there was social reasons. And I've become, 10 years ago, became convinced Lebanon is just a, it's just a mafia bank account with a flag. Other than that, I try to stay away from, like, I don't, about even references to religion, because you, know, you can talk about the mafia without talking about Catholics. And I think we talk, and I don't like talking about Wall Street in terms of Judaism and this and that, because of course that evokes something else. And I, I think those are all just the beer jingles that the different mafias have. Uh, I will say something very strange about Madoff is, uh, I mean, I could tell you the whole history of how the bad guys entered Wall Street in a nutshell. Genovese's, the main, the largest uh, mafia, uh, what do you call when you, uh, like you get stolen fence. The largest mafia fence in America was a guy in the 60s named Saul Steinhardt. And this, the prosecutor in New York who put him away said this is the largest mafia fence in America. He was sentenced to 10 years in Sing Sing. While he was in Sing Sing, he put his son to Wharton. His son's name is Michael Steinhardt. Michael got out and formed the first uh, hedge fund, Steinhardt Fine Berkowitz. He admitted later, because Mitchell was about to publish, that actually all of his funding through the 70s came from his father's associates and sacks of cash and envelopes of cash. That's when the mob entered Wall Street. It was through Michael Steinhardt. Michael Steinhardt was bosom buddies, a guy named Mark Rich. Mark Rich with his financier, Mark Rich, you must all know, Mark Rich in the 1980s got caught trading oil with Libya and Iran, fled to Zug, Switzerland with Pinky Green. Uh, recently died. Michael Steinhardt continued. He was indicted in 1992 for doing, for manipulating the market in U.S. Treasuries, and had to sign a consent decree never to touch any federal security instrument. He's basically a Hannibal Lecter with a mask that he can't ever come near the federal government's securities. Uh, Michael Steinhardt is the one who obtained the pardon from Mark Rich, the the, the traitor who was living in Switzerland, who recently died. Michael Steinhardt had two protégés. And my, my cousin covered Michael Steinhardt for Goldman. Uh, my cousin worked at, was a 25-year Wall Street guy, worked at Goldman. And Steinhardt was famous for wanting what he called fancy information. Fancy information is, like, my first call my cousin ever got from Steinhardt was, uh, like, Goldman had just come out with a downgrade on IBM. And Steinhardt called to chew him out and said, and you know, why didn't you let me know 10 minutes ahead of time about, you, you could have let me know 10 minutes ahead of time that your company, Goldman, was about to downgrade at IBM. And my cousin says, what are you talking about, Mr. Steinhardt? I can't do that. That's illegal. And Steinhardt said, you dumb effing kid. You look at how much vig I pay your firm a month. And you tell me. I pay you $5 million a month. You can't give me some fancy information. Well, he, got, he was notorious for this very hard-driven, fancy information-driven trading style. Steinhardt had two protégés. One's a woman named Karen Backfish. Karen Backfish was his head trader. Picked all this up, married a fellow named Jim Cramer. Jim Cramer, in his early work, was described how everything he... Now, he downplays his connection to Steinhardt. In fact, he office for two years next in Steinhardt's office next door to Steinhardt. 
and in his early work attributes everything he learned to his wife. Uh, and I once wrote an essay where I just dug up all this, his early work, where he's absolutely acknowledging criminal activity, he's acknowledging doing all this and how, uh, anyways, that's Jim Cramer. The other protege of Michael Steinhardt was a guy named David Rocker. David Rocker was a very, uh, ran with a very tough crowd on Wall Street, spent 30 years insinuating to everybody on Wall Street that he was mobbed up because of these connections. Steinhardt and uh, David Rock in 2004 picked a fight with me. Don't know why, different theories, but this guy started going around and he picked a public fight with me. And that's the thread that I started pulling on that led to Steinhardt and Genovese, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. That's how I got into the fight. So that's, uh, so I don't really want to, I don't think that, you know, there are different mafias in Russia. One of them is the Red Mafia, which has a very large, uh, you don't even want to say Jewish because they don't even define themselves that way. They, but uh, but I just generally like to leave that whole that whole side of this out of the equation. We can talk about Genovese's without talking about Catholicism. Okay, I see a woman that's been waiting. Oh, yes, ma'am. Great question. Absolutely. You know, that might be the agency that could finally, if one starts hurting the federal pockets, maybe it'll do something. Absolutely. Because if you make it short, if a company goes down, if you've shorted a company from 100 and it goes to zero, you technically owe tax. And there's a form your broker is supposed to submit to the IRS that says this hundred dollar position is no longer just a holding it's a it's now profit that whole system is itself very very flimsy and so you talk about an agency that really would be eating their own uh, their own cooking if they went after this would be the irs 